Occasionally, there are people throughout history you just can't help but admire. And I think Bess of Hardwick is one such person. This remarkable, apparently charming and often underestimated woman enjoys a fascinating history that links her to four queens. Mary, once Queen of France and mother of Lady Frances Grey, Lady Jane Grey, daughter of Lady Frances, who went on to become the nine-day queen after the death of her cousin Edward VI, Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. Yet Bess is probably best known for the immense value of the inventories she had made sometime during 1601, itemising all the furnishings and embroidered textiles from her three properties, many of which were examples of her own craftsmanship. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari expedition leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. The embroideries and tapestries in these inventories, known as the Hardwick Hall Textiles, one of the greatest collections of 16th and 17th century embroidery, laces, tapestries and other textiles, included embroidery by Mary, Queen of Scots, was left to Bess's heirs to be preserved in perpetuity, making this 400-year-old collection the largest collection of tapestries, embroideries, canvas work and other textiles to have been preserved by a single private family. And it all began with Bess of Hardwick, a woman from humble beginnings who eventually reached the dizzying and dangerous heights of Tudor society. Bess was a woman well ahead of her time who secured an amazing legacy for future generations through this generous and forward-thinking bequest. Yet she was also a shrewd and acute businesswoman who became notable in Elizabethan English society as one of the richest and most powerful women in the kingdom, second only to Queen Elizabeth I. Bess also had a passion for building, overseeing building work on Hardwick Hall, her former childhood home, and Chatsworth House, two of the greatest houses of the Elizabethan age. And according to a book written by Mary Lowell entitled Bess of Hardwick, First Lady of Chatsworth, published by Hachette Digital in 2009, More is known about Bess of Hardwick than we know about any other non-royal woman of the Tudor age. Hers is a truly remarkable story. So who was Bess? 
At a time when women were often not well educated, were considered the property of their husbands and had few legal rights, Bess seems to have had the ability to negotiate her way through a very male-dominated world. To begin with, well-made marriages ensured she mixed in the highest levels of English nobility, with three of her four husbands moving in court circles. Sent into service in London with a distant cousin at the age of 12, a common practice in Tudor times used to teach young people how to mix in higher societies. Bess most likely ran errands, sewed, wrote letters, but would have been treated with the respect accorded to her birthright. It did not mean service as we know it today. And this is where Bess met and married her first husband, Robert Barlow, in 1543. She was 15 and Robert just 13. Sadly, Robert died two years later and Bess had to fight numerous court battles to win her dower rights, providing her with a small but respectable yearly income. Although unconfirmed, it's thought Bess then joined the household of Henry VIII's niece, Lady Frances Brandon, daughter of Henry's favourite sister, Mary Tudor, who was once Queen of France. Here, Bess met and mixed with all of Lady Frances's three daughters, one of whom was Lady Jane Grey, who would go on to become the nine-day Queen of England upon the death of her cousin, Edward VI. It's also where she would have gained invaluable training to become a courtier from Lady Frances Grey herself, who was a lady-in-waiting to two queens, Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour. Now, Lady Frances's household was considered the top tier of Tudor living, boasting the best of food, wine, beautiful clothing and furnishings, teaching Bess how to mix and socialise with important visitors and probably where she gained her appreciation for the beautiful items she loved to collect. It's also where she met her second husband, William Cavendish, treasurer of Henry VIII's chamber, to whom she was betrothed in 1547. Upon her marriage to William, Bess gained the title of Lady Cavendish, was stepmother to his three daughters and chatelaine of his two fine houses. She was just 19, he was 40. This was a significant social advancement for Bess, but it may well be also where she fine-tuned her savvy business acumen as she gradually took over maintaining the accounts for Sir William's portfolio of properties, one of which was Chatsworth House. The keeping of these accounts allude to a confident and sensible woman who was also willing to pay for information from the court, something she did for the remainder of her life. There's also a record of payments made to a male embroiderer named Angel, who often helped Bess with large embroidery projects or tasks involving delicate sewing. Although she made, trimmed and embroidered her husband's doublets herself and frequently purchased bonework, bands of material encrusted with embroidery of black silk, of silver or gold wire or thread. 
One of her early purchases for their marriage was a magnificent marriage bed aptly named the Pearl Bed. And this description comes directly from Mary Lyle's book, Bess Hardwick, the First Lady of Chatsworth. Five pieces of hangings, 11 foot deep, a bedstead carved and gilded, a tester bedhead and double valance of black velvet embroidered with silver, gold and pearls, in raspberries and honeysuckle, fringed with gold, silver and black silk, with my lady's and Sir William Cavendish's arms in the bedhead. Five curtains of black and white damask, laid about with gold lace and gold fringe, and gold lace down the middle. A mattress, a feather bed, a wool quilt and bolster and two pillows, a pair of fustians, two Spanish blankets, a counterpane, black velvet striped with silver, embroidered pearls and pearls, the raised circular decoration of silver and gold wire, and another cover for the bed of black quilted sarsenet. It's at this time we begin to see Bess's personality for acquiring wonderful textiles start to shine through. And it's to William Cavendish that Bess gave birth to eight children, six of whom survived, and in Tudor tradition where connections were ever important, godmothers to two of their children included future queens of England, Lady Jane Grey and Lady Elizabeth Tudor, three godparents would eventually be beheaded. These were tough times. William Cavendish died in 1557 when Bess was 30, so within a relatively short space of time, Bess, the country girl in straitened circumstances, was now living fairly high in Tudor society with six children and no husband. Their stately home, Chatsworth House, rebuilt in 1599, is the seat of the Dukes of Devonshire and has been in the Cavendish family since 1549. In 1944, Kathleen Kennedy, sister of John F. Kennedy, married William Cavendish, Marquess of Hartington, eldest son of the 10th Duke of Devonshire. Sadly, he was killed in action during World War II. His younger brother became Duke, marrying Deborah Mitford, one of the famed aristocratic Mitford sisters. Chatsworth House remained in the Cavendish family until 1957. Now we begin to actually see what Bess is made of. Her former husband left the widowed Bess with a £5,000 debt to the Crown. But marriage number three to William St. Lowe, a polished courtier from an ancient and noble family, must have helped. This marriage appears to have been a true love match, and although it produced no children, it seems to have been a happy one. William St. Lowe died, leaving Bess a widow for the third time, inheriting one third of his St. Lowe estates, making her a very wealthy woman indeed. Bess was used to moving in and around royal circles, but marriage number four to George Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, one of the richest and most powerful men in the kingdom, certainly cemented and advanced her position even further. 
and upon Mary Queen of Scots' flight to England. It was George Talbot whom Elizabeth I appointed her keeper. But for the next 15 years of Mary's incarceration, Bess was just as much Mary's keeper as her husband. And it's throughout this period as Mary's companion, they collaborated on embroidery and textile projects. The ever ambitious Bess tried her best with Mary, finally finding common ground in a shared passion for embroidery. They undertook needlework together, often joined by Agnes Livingston and Mary Seaton. And we know this from a circa 1569 letter from Talbot to William Cecil, Elizabeth's treasurer, which says, This Queen, Mary, continueth daily to resort unto my wife's, Bess's, chamber, where the Lady Lewiston and Mrs. Seaton she useth to sit, working with the needle, in which she much delighteth. Both Bess and Mary were proficient needlewomen, with Mary admitting that the diversity of colours made the time seem less tedious. While they stitched, Bess gossiped about the goings-on at court, with Mary enjoying listening to the scurrilous tittle-tattle. And one of their collaborations is what is now known as the Oxborough Hangings, embroidered between 1570 and 1585, with panels worked in counted thread embroidery and applique onto green velvet some time later each with a square centrepiece with octagonal panels containing emblems of plants and animals. Over 100 panels were worked by Mary, Bess and female members of Mary's household in cross-stitch on canvas, then applied to the green velvet background at a later date. The designs came from emblem books owned by Mary, depicting birds, animals and fish. The subjects range from the everyday, honeybees, a falcon, a mole, even a dog gnawing a bone, to the exotic, an elephant, a tiger, an ape and a dolphin, to the fantastical, a dragon, a phoenix and a unicorn. Worked over coarsely woven linen canvas using coloured silks and gold, silver and silver gilt threads using two humble counted thread embroidery styles, cross stitch and tent stitch and probably tensioned using a small portable frame rather than being worked freely in the hand. It's thought the oddly named cattle embroidery or the cat and mouse panel design was drawn then outlined in black thread by a professional embroiderer then stitched by the queen or bess. Was this done for all the other panels? It's not mentioned but it would make sense for them to have done so. And unusually many of the panels feature the monograms of both Mary and Bess. Embroiderers don't often sign their work, some samplers being the exception. These extremely rare surviving examples of embroidery worked by a member of royalty offer a unique insight into one of the most infamous events in English history. 
It was common at this time for wealthy women to work cooperatively, making individual panels that could then be stitched together to form a larger work such as curtains, bed coverings or wall hangings. So not only are these embroideries highly significant historically, they also demonstrate the veiled symbols Mary used as a powerful means of resistance and expression at a time when she couldn't exert any control over her own existence. Mary was under constant surveillance and was never left alone. For example, one panel features a phoenix, the mythological creature capable of regeneration, a powerful symbol of immortality. A panel of a crowned ginger cat toying with a mouse or the so-called cattle embroidery could easily be interpreted as a veiled representation of the uneasy relationship between herself and her cousin Elizabeth, with Elizabeth as the crowned cat and Mary as the mouse. This panel now resides in the royal collection. Another panel includes a marigold, a name derived from Mary's gold, turned towards the sun representing courage in adversity and a yellow rose attacked by a group of caterpillars suggests the overpowering feeling of despair. Yet another panel featuring a grapevine and a hand holding a pruning knife could be read as referring to Mary's claim to the throne and the need to cut away the fruitless branch of the Tudor tree as Elizabeth remained childless. Well over 400 years old, the survival of these panels is an indication of the high quality of the embroidery. They may have served as cushion covers while Mary was still alive or used as smaller hangings in Bess's various houses. Mary also used her embroidery as gifts for friends and supporters, including her cousin Queen Elizabeth, with whom she wanted to maintain and foster some form of relationship. How much Bess knew of Mary's secret letters, messages and plotting is unclear, but eventually their relationship deteriorated beyond redemption, probably leading to the failure of Bess's marriage to Shrewsbury, who came to refer to Bess as my wicked and malicious wife and my professed enemy. Mary was eventually beheaded in 1587. The panels she made were given to Anne Dacra, Countess of Arundel, and are known as the Marian Hanging, one part of the Oxborough Hangings, as they arrived at Oxborough Hall in 1761, probably coinciding with when they were mounted onto the green velvet. The other two embroidered works, the Shrewsbury Hanging and the Cavendish Hanging, were made by Bess. A replica Marian hanging has been made by a group of 33 volunteers donating over 2,500 hours of their time to help keep the legacy of Mary Queen of Scots alive and is on display in the royal apartments in the castle used by Mary. Bess or Elizabeth, the Countess of Shrewsbury, died in 1608, aged over 80. She never remarried. 
What a life and what a legacy to the world of embroidery. Without her foresightedness, many of these embroidered textiles may not have survived. Bess must have been a strong and independent character indeed, simply to have survived in those times. Just consider the situation she was in, working for one queen while imprisoning another. Thank you for your time. Traversing this amazing history is fascinating and very inspiring. Stitch Safari's now reached over 4,000 downloads and that's all thanks to you. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Till the next episode of Stitch Safari, bye for now.